Hello and welcome to the Mythmakers podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author, but also a director of the centre. Now, here's a little quote for you. See if you recognise it. This is the great story of the North, which should be to all our race what the tale of Troy was to the Greeks. Now, perhaps some of you are sitting there thinking that's J.R.R. Tolkien talking about Lord of the Rings, where he wanted to write a story for the North. But actually, it's by William Morris, his Victorian predecessor. And today we're going to spend time with William Morris in this podcast. And to help us through this enormous subject, because William Morris was a man of so many talents, we just couldn't possibly cover them all, is Dr. Ingrid Hansen who is a lecturer of English literature at the University of Manchester and also a very old friend of mine. So hello, Ingrid. Hi, nice to be here, Julia. So first of all, let's put William Morris in context. He is a figure that people may have heard about, but they may not know him so much as a writer. And looking up his dates, if I've got this right, he was born in around 1834 and lived to... 1896. But let's think about him first as a poet and prose writer. So can you give a little sketch of the range of his works under that title? Absolutely. So I'll just kind of dive in for a moment where you started, which is to say that, yeah, in the 1870s, and then I'll go backwards to the beginning, but in the 1870s, Morris got really excited about Iceland and Icelandic literature. So that quotation is about the saga of the Volsungs, um, which he translated with an um, Icelandic um, scholar, Erika Malmason, and he also went to Iceland and then later um, produced an epic um, Icelandic poem telling the story of the Volsungs and the Niblungs called um, Sigurd the Volsung and the Fall of the Niblungs. So he first translated the saga with Maunason called Volsunga Saga, and then he wrote his own version of it. That's in kind of the middle of Morris's career, that Sigurd the Volsung comes out in 1876. But let's go back to where he started. So yes, he was born in 1834 into a kind of upper middle class family. His father had made a load of money um, in a mining interest called Devon Consoles. And uh, Morris was sent to a minor public school, well, I think it's minor, uh, Marlborough, and uh, which he hated, called it a boy farm, spent all his time escaping, getting out into the countryside, having a look at historical um, uh, buildings and old um, barrows on the, on the hillsides and so on. And then he went up to Oxford um, in 1852 or 53, and uh, 53, I think he actually went up, and um, to read greats, but it was there that he met the um, uh, Edward Byrne Jones, who of course became a, a very well-known artist and a, a group Group of other young men with whom he got really excited about literature and uh, so um, Morris had written a few things um, early on in his undergraduate um, life there's a few poems um, that he wrote then and he started reading um, Mallory's Mort D'Arthur that really excited him um, as well as Ruskin the um, artist and art critic um, and, and, and also Tennyson and Browning and all kinds of other writers of the day. Um, he and his friends used to read them out loud to each other, um, or at least Morris did most of the reading out loud. He was very keen on reading and less keen on listening. Yes, go could on. I ask, could I ask about the, uh, the group of, yes. of friends? Did they have a name? So the reason they I'm asking is, is because obviously Tolkien and Lewis, who we often talk about on these podcasts, name themselves the Inklings. I'm just wondering if there's a precursor Inklings also in Oxford that we <laughs> have forgotten about. 
I mean, it was very much that kind of group. They didn't really have a name. They started off wanting to call themselves the Brotherhood and they temporarily called themselves the Brotherhood. Edward Byrne-Jones said, we must take Sir Galahad as our model. Um, and they right. thought about kind of, they thought about having us at that time, very early on, uh, Morris was thinking about going into the church and they were thinking, they were influenced by, you know, Arthurian ideas of brotherhood and also an idea of a kind of holy fellowship. But they very quickly dropped that actually. And instead poured that kind of brotherhood energy into a magazine called the Oxford and Cambridge magazine. It was called the Oxford and Cambridge because although almost all of them were at Oxford, there were a couple, Vernon Lushington and his brother were at Cambridge um, and a couple of others who were part of that um, sort of brotherhood as it were but they didn't so they didn't end up calling themselves the brotherhood they started the oxford and cambridge magazine which they brought out in 1856 12 issues in 1856 that's as long as it lasted and when morris looked back on it later he wrote to somebody later in about 1868 i think who'd written to him asking about starting his own uh, magazine and morris said oh you know i kind of i wish you hadn't looked at it really it wasn't that great um but actually <laughs> that's where he published his first his first work which was a series of short stories actually he did he published a few poems in there but also wonderful kind of short romances um one of them and um, this the the um which is about a a church a builder um or a, a decorator um carving designs on a church um in the middle ages and one of his friends coming back from the crusades who's also the lover of his wife um so a, a lot of those stories are are where you start to see morris's interest in the work of the hands in the relationship between art architecture landscape and uh, romantic relationships, but also uh, relationships of brotherhood. So the narrator of that story and Amiot, the friend who come back, are, are obviously really close and loving. And that idea of male friendship runs through Morris's work. Um, so you those can are see the, uh, you can see the influence of Ruskin as well with the idea of the the medieval craftsman, which is like his yeah. ideal of the idea of creativity for a public use but also having an individual imprint as opposed to the era in the Victorian times when you're getting mass produced things which remove the individual expression. So, Absolutely. you know, it's all part of a reaction to industrialization amongst other things. Yes, completely. So that obsession with with the Arthurian stories in the past is about saying, yes, the way things are now, what uh, Burne Jones calls an article cant and hypocrisy and, and a kind of sense of people being removed in a way, it, removed also from their bodily experience. So Morris mm. is always, I mean, hands are huge in his work in another one of those stories, Goethe's Lovers. We have lots of different kind of iterations of people's hands and how their hands, the way that their hands are, show what kind of people they are. Um, and he himself is going, as he writes, to one of his friends I went to brassing the other day um, so he loves going and doing you know rubbing brasses in churches and you know so that there's that physical contact with the past and with story and myth is really important for Morris and so then once he finishes Oxford and the Oxford and Cambridge magazine closes he publishes in 1858 his first collection of poetry the defense of Guinevere and other poems oh, yeah. um, with this so that so a lot of those are Arthurian they're all um, medieval all his stories actually in the Oxford and Cambridge magazine are set um, in the distant past apart from one called Frank's sealed letter which is in the contemporary moment very rare for Morris um, he's got a couple of other things that are contemporary but they're almost all in the past could we just have a, a, a little pause? It's, as I said, there's so much to talk about, but I just want to pause so people do note the defence of Guinevere, which is yeah. such an interesting text, um, particularly because it is putting quite a feminist spin, 
you might think all these buff looking Victorian gents with beards uh, are all going to be very anti-women. But of course, Morris was not at all. He's a, an, an equal opportunities person at heart. Um, and his defence of Guinevere is pleading her case from her point of view, if I'm correct. Perhaps you, yes. I'm not the expert. You tell us about the defence of Guinevere, Ingrid. It's a fascinating poem, and I think there's I think there's a number of things going on there. I think there is a a really interesting kind of um, you know proto feminist kind of reading going on. Although there are also some more complicated kind of you know um, males men looking at women looking beautiful kind of uh, matters going on. So it starts, but it starts off giving Guinevere a voice. I love that it starts kind of you know in the middle of the action where Guinevere is on trial for you know her adultery with Lancelot, and it starts off, but knowing now that they would have her speak. She threw her wet hair backward from her brow, her hand close to her mouth, touching her cheek. This incredibly, you know, as though she had had there a shameful blow. So this wonderful, immediately kind of we see her body and the kind of distance as though she had had there a shameful blow. But, you know, she feels she must a little touch it. So um, it's a Terzarima poem as well, which means that the, the middle, so it's a, it's a three line stanzas and the middle line of one stanza links to the first line of the next stanza in terms of the rhymes and that's a form that was used by Dante so it's reaching back to Dante uh, you know in the 15th century as well um, and it's so it, it, knowing now that they would have her speak for quite a few lines Guinevere doesn't I love that beginning you know she takes her own time um, and, we, and then when we do get to her speaking she does a fantastic thing where she says you know I know that you're all great lords and I ought to I ought to apologize for what I've done but imagine this and then she sets up a scene where um, imagine that your time will come to die and you're lying there and an angel appears and he's got two cloths and one of them's red and one of them's blue and um, says choose and so you think oh heaven's color blue after half an hour of wondering about it and he says hell it's a great moment again of kind of more you know absolutely refusing the kind of moral structure that would say okay we know how things work and we know what you've done and you'll she, she starts to go okay where does meaning lie and how do you know what i've done wrong um so there's this one it's a wonderful poem and she keeps coming back to gawain the knight who's her key accuser in in, in morris's version of it and says you know um, you as a gawain lie um and but but she's kind at the same time she tells the story of her romance with Lancelot. So there's a lot of questions raised. And the one last thing that I want to say about it, I mean, do go and read it, you know, it's, it's wonderful and glorious. But what's really interesting to think about is this is called the defense of Guinevere. And her defense is not, let me tell you why I'm right, or let me tell you what I did or why I did it. Her defense is, look at me, I'm a beautiful queen. I can't possibly have done anything wrong, which is a kind of medieval view. Look at my body, I can't have done anything wrong. Yeah, oh, I did all kinds of things, but you know what? You're still lying. And so she's defending herself like a knight. And at the very end of the poem, Morris makes her, he says that she she turns, she's waiting for Lancelot to come and she listens like a knight, listening out for the sound of his brother, um, of his brother warrior. So in fact, this is like a trial by combat and she's in combat, you know, again and again. She's on the on the attack here as well as the defense. So yeah, it's complicated and, and glorious as a poem. And then there's a whole load of other uh, Arthurian poems in that collection as well. Right, I, I stopped you on uh, Guinevere. So let's, let's canter on <laughs> because we've got a long career to follow. Yes. So yes. after the Arthurian poems, so Where after the Arthurian poems, um, he goes on to write um, some really well. So the Arthurian poems kind of, you know, 
in terms of critical reception, people were a little bit puzzled by them, thought that they, they kind of fell under the slightly um, sort of censorious views of the pre-Raphaelites that people held at that time. You know, they're angular and they're odd. And I mean, angles are fantastically important to Morris as they are to pre-Raphaelites, you know, odd angles. Um, the description of her kiss with Lancelot where their mouths went wandering in one way. And it's very interesting. Um, so, but they, they critics weren't terribly pleased with them. Um, but then he goes on to write The Earthly Paradise, which is a, a series, it's a sort of, you know, Chaucerian, you have a prologue with wanderers, and then each one of them um, tells a different story. And it's a whole collection of um, both classical and then uh, northern tales told in verse. Um, and this was hugely popular, hugely successful. Um, he published it between um, 1868 and 1870, and that really made his name. Um, and he also published some, some um, again, some classical works, The Life and Death of Jason, which was very well received. And by now he'd started collaborating with Edward Byrne Jones as well. So um, Edward Byrne Jones was doing woodcuts for his work. So these were beautifully produced works. And, um, you know, he was praised for being, you know, mellifluous and melodious and, and sort of sweet and beautiful and such a, a wonderful voice. Um, and then he so 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 that was that was a kind of really sort of high period. And then in 1868, just as he was sort of you know bringing out the earthly paradise, that's when he met Erica Mounison, the um, Icelander, and became really interested in Iceland. Started doing translations of um, um, Icelandic prose tales. Uh, and then became interested in kind of what he talk, talks about, the worship of courage of the north of Iceland. Um, and he went on two trips there, 1871 and 1873, and was just stunned by the landscape. And so again, you know, the importance always, by this time Morris was working, he'd gone on leaving university, he'd gone first of all to work for an architect, GE Street, and then he left that architects and became, set up his own firm, um, again, with several other of his, his friends and associates they set that up in 1861 and then in 1865 um, they sort of rejigged it so it was just Morris's called Morris and Co um, so they were producing um, wallpapers and stained glass windows and by 1875 when Morris started writing Sigurd the Volsen this fantastic story of you know revenge and drama and so many kind of Tolkien-esque um, motifs in Sigurd the Volsen as well you know we have the the kind of um, you know Fafnir the serpent and um, all kinds of you know, the, the sort of hidden treasure um, lots of bewitchment lots of traveling through landscapes which are very you know I'm sure um, Tolkien drew on some of those landscapes for his own landscapes too um, could we just there's two things there I'd like to draw out because hmm. um, one let, we're going to go back to the the north in a second but um you mentioned that with his uh, collaboration with the pre-raphaelites and burn jones is that he begins this emphasis in his work on the presentation of it which carries on all the way up to the end of his life and particularly um typeface and uh woodcuts and i think it's worth putting him in a tradition of other poets so you've got Another poet, you need to see the visual as well as the words, is someone like William Blake earlier to him. Yeah. Um, but going forward, he also does remind me of um, Tolkien himself, who spent a lot of time on his creating his own calligraphy, his own languages, and of course, illustrating. Um, in a sense, he's quite a good, William Morris is quite a good bridge between those two figures. But so it, 
do look up the visuals, everyone. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the top tip, really. But going back to where we want to spend in the north, I think it's we've forgotten now just how well known William Morris was as a writer at the time. Yeah. So the later generation coming along, thanks to this golden period of the Arthurian tales leading on to the other stories you've just talked about, he was actually thought of in sort of poet laureate terms, wasn't he? Absolutely. You yeah. know, yeah. so the next generation, when they are reading their Arthurian romances, they're reading him as well as Tennyson. So someone like Charles Williams amongst the Inklings would have had all of this in his background and C.S. Lewis, uh, the sort of medieval version filtered through the pre-Raphaelites. Um, but let's talk about the North and go back there because this, I think, uh, it's, you know, Tolkien, as a boy, this is where he would have first found these stories. It was the way they were coming into um, the English language. And as well as the translations, he also wrote a fantastic diary of his voyages, which I wish I went to Iceland a few years ago. I wish I'd had them because I can recognise every place he talks about reading it so he's also a notable travel writer if there wasn't already enough on his very heavy <laughs> heavy plate so what yeah. do you think um he admired in the Icelandic culture you mentioned the um the courage factor what other mm -hmm. sort of themes is he bringing into an audience who've not heard these stories before because they've not yet been translated for a mass audience so he's interested in a couple of things actually and again his interest in the relationship between landscape and people comes out here and that's why you know that that um, moment that you quoted at the beginning which is at the beginning of his first translation of the Volsunga saga with Erica Magnusson is important because he's interested in in a kind of um in a relationship between people and the land in which they live. So, so he's a kind of um, internationalist. Later, he becomes very interested in international relations. He's anti-imperial, but he's interested also in people's own kind of belonging to their land. So one of the things that he sees in Iceland is a kind of consonance between people's lives and their land. He likes the old um, kind of styles of governance um, of old Iceland, the all thing, the way in which people met together kind of communally to make to, to discuss the way that things were going to be governed. Um, he likes the stoicism of the people. He talks about the terrible and tragic land. He goes there himself to kind of try and find some courage. He, he writes that you know, in letters. That's why he's going there in a way to find some courage. And he comes back feeling renewed and revitalized. He goes off to Iceland, in fact, leaving his wife, Jane Morris, in Kelmscott Manor, um, the house that he's bought recently with his friend, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who by that time is having an affair with his wife, um, Jane. And he leaves them there together kind of goes off to find some courage you know to feel okay um, because he, he talks elsewhere about how he doesn't you know Morris is not he's not keen on the idea of the procrustean bed of marriage where people are kind of forced into something um, and kind of wants people to be he expresses later in his sort of great utopian novel news from nowhere that people should be free um, to choose their um, loving relationships but of course within the context of, of his own sort of Victorian period you know people are not moving around so freely but he kind of chooses in a way to live with that. Um, so he admires the stoicism of the people, he admires the sort of connection between their, their stories, their landscape, and the way that he sees them living. Those are some of the things that he likes. And he loves the landscape, he loves the 
barrenness of the landscape and and the the mm. way you have to you know force yourself through difficult paths and uh, yeah in, in his accounts those diaries are, are so fascinating aren't they those travel diaries because he 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 figures himself quite often as a little bit of a sort of you know a li little bit feeble a little bit lacking in courage like there are moments when he sort of says oh you know I really didn't want to do it or you know I, I felt too but he sort of forces himself so that's really interesting that and always with Morris that sense of the connection between the body the landscape and that the art or myth or story um, runs through it so and of course in in Sigurd the Volsk I mean it's a fantastic tale of of kind of you know love and betrayal and revenge and it's a beautifully told story absolutely cracking so I really recommend that to people too it's it's long but it's beautiful well I think this is you know we're doing this just before Christmas and so it's something to put on the wish list definitely <laughs> a nice long read for the new year um okay so my understanding is and you correct me if I'm wrong that sort of the later decades of Morris's life were definitely dominated by his interest in social socialism and politics so is the 1870s the pivot or has he already started being interested earlier on yeah I mean I think there's just a, a complete continuity really because he's always interested he's always you know struggling against really what he later came to understand as Victorian capitalism, you know, the rise of industry, um, alienation of labor, all of those things which are really identified in, in kind of Marxist socialism. But he's he's always struggling against it. He's always looking for a way of, of greater human connection. And he's bothered by um, inequality and injustice. And you see that in his earlier works. I and mean, even the fact that he gives a voice to Guinevere, you know, he's kind of giving a voice to people who don't have a voice early on in his work. Um, 1876 is really the turn point he gets involved in the eastern question um kind of agitation at the time about britain's relationship um to turkey and uh, russia and britain at that point is supporting turkey morris sees turkey and the ottoman empire as it is at that point as a sort of a pressing power so um some massacres had taken place in bulgaria and um, britain was supporting turkey against russia and um, morris speaks out against this gets really involved in agitation about the eastern question um so that's really um, and at that point he's a, he's a great supporter of Gladstone he thinks he's a fantastic outstanding politician he's really in support of the liberals but very quickly gets disillusioned with the liberals um, not least what, because of what he calls their stock jobbing war in Egypt so they go off once he starts to see that the liberals are actually you know they're not act, they're not against oppression and empire um, and he finds that he gets put off by that and he writes in a letter later at that point in the 1870s I was just looking for some kind of body to join where I could express the things that mattered to me so then in in um in the early 1880s in 1883 he finds the social um democratic federation uh, which is really the first um sort of post-marx so socialist body um in britain set up in london and he joins that so he's not just interested in socialism he is you know body and soul because that is really how morris does things he's body and soul committed to socialism from then on. He finds that as a way of trying to change um, the injustices that he sees. And he couches those injustices often in terms of ugliness. Um, and but by ugliness he means a kind of a smallness of life, a diminishment of the quality of life. Um, that he sees um, for particularly for the working class in Britain. And so he then spends, you know, the 1880s traveling the length and breadth of the country. He goes up to Scotland. Um, he goes all over the place preaching socialism, as he puts it. Um, that becomes his, his real focus. Um, and a lot of his writings then start to um, deal with 
socialist themes. I think as well as sort of talking about him as a precursor to the sort of inkling circle and some of their interests, it's also worth at this point when you're saying that is pointing out the difference. I think one of the things that you get hold of when you read about Morris is just how hard he worked. I mean, incredibly hard because he is running a business uh, which still has a recognisable, the William uh, Morrison Co is still a brand (laughs) today. Look it up. You all recognize the fabrics. Um, but the, you know, the, the, this unpaid work really for a socialist cause is, is phenomenal, which he is doing on top of everything else. And this is very different from the professorial lives of the Inklings. I mean, it's more like Charles Williams, actually, of the Inklings who carried on being an ed- a full-time editor. And, but the actual intensity of his work with this industrial not he's not he would say handcraft industry shall we say mm. um which he's also running trying to make financially sustainable he's very much well in the full flow of society he is not in his ivory tower he's not sitting in you know oxford or somewhere he's 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 fully engaged and a real powerhouse mm. um press at this point would be quite good to have a little think of what he was like as a person because people might not know about him as a physical presence he was quite he was often caricatured for example wasn't he because yes. he was quite memorable to look at we'd like to have a go at describing him <laughs> yeah absolutely and again you know for people listening to this podcast go and just look up online edward Byrne jones's caricatures of morris who he called topsy his friends from his youth called him topsy which his later socialist friends found a bit kind of you know shocking um uh, but uh, the, the, uh, edward Byrne jones has a whole series of caricatures topsy in various different positions so um, as he got older i mean he was a, a good looking guy with a great big beard you know and that common Victorian way and quite a high forehead Um, and he became you know reasonably stout as he got older and he used to go around in a kind of um, in sort of um, blue a a kind of blue fairly coarse material blue top and blue trousers Um, at at some point he's got a description in his um, great utopian novel news from nowhere about a character in there in these blue clothes looking at like a ship's purser um, and in fact Morris describes himself like that at some point so and his hair you know he's quite in his letters quite frequently he's writing to his wife saying he's like oh I, you know I am going to get my hair cut I know I need to get my hair cut so he's got quite a lot of hair um, and looks a bit a bit wild um, and then you know I think he he, he, excuse me, he seems by all accounts to have been a really big physical presence he 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 responded to things hugely again in news from nowhere where the current central character in there is clearly modeled on morris he talks at one point about how he's in a socialist meeting and he loses his temper and damns them all for fools um and this is clearly you know from his daughter's accounts from other people's accounts clearly this is one of morris's ways of responding to, to things but he is you know as you were saying he's absolutely he's in the in the the swim of life he's really committed to the cause that he's working for so by <coughs> by the 1880s oh i'm so sorry hang on a second <coughs> oh i'll have my cup of tea um not only is he running the firm and going out literally speaking on street corners for socialism and on occasion on occasion getting arrested for doing so because he's taking part in demonstrations um and again, there are caricatures in the newspapers, you know, the poet of the earthly paradise um, being taking part in these um, in these demonstrations. And of course, lots of his other friends from those kind of more respectable echelons of society are a bit kind of shocked at this. But 
he, ca he carries on regardless. Um, he's also in the, in, in the 1870s, as part of his work for Morris & Co, he'd started rediscovering methods of dyeing. So he, he spends a whole load of time in sort of between 1875 and 1880 with his hands buried in vats of dye, starts signing himself to his daughter, your Prussian blue, because um, he's discovering <laughs> And he's wanting to discover natural dye. So he's he's funny as well. I think that's important to say. He's a, he's as well as all of these things. He's also set up the Society for the Pr Protection of Ancient Buildings, protesting against um, kind of work to um, what was seen as sort of um, you know improve um, buildings. He wants to see no kind of adding stuff to old buildings or cleaning them off in any but the most necessary way because he wants to preserve that kind of um, link between their past you know keep them as they were so that's it that's an organization that draws in all sorts of people from Ruskin to Disraeli at various points he's so he's kind of um, a leading figure in that writing letters sending out campaigns but at the same time he's also taking care of his family so he has two daughters by this time Jenny and May Jenny um, had epilepsy which at the time was not very well understood so she was often kind of sent to away um, to try and find places that were better for her and Morris's letters to Jenny are beautiful letters full of affection he often signs off using the words of Joe from um, Great Expectations what larks oh I'm looking forward to seeing you my dear and then what larks and um, so this lovely sense of of warmth and affection um, although this kind of complicated family life um, because of um, you know, the, the relationships that his wife is having with other people um, he has some kind of you know various um, close relationships with other women as well as men in his life um, so it's a really you know it's a really sort of busy and full life all sorts of things going on and he also said so, so yes another point. connection here we, we can make yeah. just thinking about connection to other fantasy writers uh, with the um, Society for Protection of Ancient Buildings is I uh, made me think of um, Beatrix Potter with setting up the national or helping establish the National Trust, which is uh, for those of you outside the UK, it's one of the main charities that protects large areas of land as well as buildings. And Beatrix Potter, the famous um, illustrator and writer, coming shortly after William Morris's life, of course. Um, she helped establish that by buying up a, num a certain amount of farmland in the Lake District that was going to be developed. A very, very much a kind of cause which I'm sure William Morris would have approved of, as would the later um, writers we often talk about, um, Tolkien in particular. So we have this man who is it's like stepping in front of a furnace when you start looking at his life. It's so much rushing out at you, so many things you could talk about. But I think it's worth spending some time now thinking about his art and design because this isn't separate at all. It's all part of the same aesthetic, the same kind of sensibility that's producing this poetry. And one of the really enjoyable things about following William Morris is that you can, of course, now go and see things that he helped design. And they're often in quite unremarked places. So there's um, a set of Burne Joes and William um, Morris windows in the Unitarian Chapel. I think it's Harris Manchester College here in Oxford, which I only just happened to see because I was there for an event. Um, and they're fantastic. They're so beautiful. And that's just one small example. And Another place you can go when it's open is Kelmscott Manor, which is further up the Thames from Oxford, um, near a, a place called Lechlade, which is a house that kind of represents 
the the soul of his work i suppose it's it's full of his um design uh, as well as of course the architectural work he did with uh, the street practice uh in oxford so there's so much you can actually see but let's have a think about his design you talked about the hands-on um exploration of old ways of dying so that's one thread which is rediscovering old techniques mm -hmm. where do you think this fits with his his kind of approach to art and craftsmanship I mean, again, it's really part and parcel of his concern about the connection between people, their work and the land. He's, a, he's really interested in the environment. I mean, um, his, uh, his first biographer, Mikhail, writes of him that somebody who knew him as a, when he was a young man in Woodford in Essex, where he lived for a while, said that he always knew the names of birds. I love that about Morris. He know, he, he's really precise about his knowledge of nature. And this comes through into his artwork. So, you know, he has, um, you know, um, wallpapers and fabric designs which are named after rivers so he's got cray and he's got way um he's got wallpaper wallpaper and fabric designs which are um, named after plants um you know, you've got even load you've got the lovely well-known one which probably many people will know called strawberry thief which has yeah. thrushes on it which are related to blackbirds morris is fascinated by blackbirds endlessly writing letters about the blackbirds in the garden and if you look across his works often we have the sound of blackbirds. So a kind of a relationship between people and the specificity of the things of the earth. He's really interested in that. Again, if you look across his works, it's extraordinary how specific he is about the kind of trees that are growing there, you know, plains and sycamores, but maybe slightly too many of the larger ones and um, beech trees. He's got a wonderful description in the hollow land one of his early stories about the way that the light filters through the leaves of a beech tree and and the way that the beech nuts that have fallen underneath start to um you know produce saplings so he's really interested in all of that and those natural shapes come into all of his work as well mm. um and it's just worth saying there that as well as all the other stuff that he's doing across the 1880s he's also lecturing up and down the country both mm. on socialism and on art and so in in lectures like the beauty of life or also how we live and how we might live he's making connections between the earth that belongs to everybody and the and politics socialist politics suggesting that you know we need to change the way people work we need to change working conditions radically so that people are not disconnected from the earth people are not um you know unrewarded for the labor that they're doing um, and that's really important for him so it comes into it comes into his design also of course there's stories in his design there's lots you know lots of those stained glass windows um, drawn Arthurian themes as well so the sense that um, there's a connection between between story art the land on which you live and the way in which you live it and that there's and that work is really important so the idea of work across all these things you know Morris is doing his own work with his hands he's revitalizing old methods and he's interested in work that's connected work that has pleasure in it he quotes Ruskin saying saying that you know we work must be pleasurable um, you know that's a really important aspect of Morris's understanding of work and Ruskin's understanding of work and Morris says no don't 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 
come back and say, well, people can't enjoy their work. What about the dustman? He says, okay, fine, we can organize it. We've got to do some unpleasant work, fine. So let's organize it so that that kind of work is done on a rotor or that kind of work is done for short periods of time. I mean, he's very practical too. He's not some kind of, you know, dreamer um, in the earthly paradise. He calls himself, you know, the idol singer, um, but he's not, he's not at all. He's, um, he's, a, he's a real, um, he's a real practical man thinking about, you know, he's thinking about the kind of thing we might think about now in terms of a four day week or changing the structures, changing the structures of work so that everybody gets to enjoy the beauty of the earth. And that makes me laugh because uh, my academic background uh, involved the sort of Coleridge-Wordsworth um, connection. And when they were in their radical phase, they had this idea of pantisocracy. They were going to go off in the 1790s. They were going to go off to America uh, and set up an ideal community on the banks of the Susquehanna River. They hadn't been there. They just, I think they liked the sound of the word. Um, but I always remember... Coleridge estimating that in this ideal society, you just needed to do two hours of manual labor to make it work. And I remember thinking, hmm, someone's never raised a child <laughs> or, you know, a, a garden. <laughs> two hours just doesn't cover it. So I'm glad that William Morris in a later generation of poet was a bit more, well, from his life, his practical experience, you can see that he would have been a much more practical man. And in fact, probably would have run the community single-handedly and <laughs> done all the jobs himself. So I'd have joined his commune, not Coleridge's, definitely not Coleridge's. Um, Ingrid, there's so much to talk about. So we probably have to invite you back uh, on another occasion and actually do a deeper dive into one of these things we've talked about. And now I'm going to spring something on you, which um, I forgot to mention, is that always at the end of the podcast, I ask someone, where in all the fantasy worlds they've ever been is the best place to go? And it might be something like, where's the best um, pub to go and drink in or the best library to go and read a book? I think because we've been talking about William Morris, uh, I'd like to ask you where you think in all the fantasy worlds that you've ever read about in literature, all the way from the beginning of you know, literature to the present day is the best place to be a craftsperson, craftsman, craftsperson, because we've been talking obviously around the arts and crafts movement with uh, William Morris. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a good thing to think of. To allow you to think, I'll give an answer, which is I actually wrote a whole book about this. Um, I've, I've, I think I was, it's called uh, The Glass Swallow and it's about someone who makes stained glass windows. Uh, a, a female character in a world where women aren't allowed to be craftspeople and she goes off to a place where that's allowed a place called Magana so in my own I've, I'll be selfish once uh, I normally choose somebody else's world but I'll <laughs> choose the world I thought of which would be a good place for a craftsperson and that's Magana where you can do the most beautiful stained glass windows if you know as long as the economy is there to pay for you which is the problem uh, in the particular book. So where do you think would be a good place to be a craftsperson? Well, strangely enough, Julia, the thing that came to my mind, um, and perhaps this is why you and I have been friends for a long time, uh, the thing that came to my mind is the moment in Morris's utopian novel, News From Nowhere, which is set in a future period, um, but kind of draws, kind of drawing on a medieval past. So it's a future post-industrial period where people work in banded workshops rather than factories, where work is work and pleasure are continuous. People make things that they like to make. People are able to be individuals while also living communally. And in that world, so Guest, who's a visitor from the 19th century, goes, to, goes there. He arrives in London in Hammersmith, 
where Morris's own house is, and he travels down the river uh, to Kelmscott Manor near Letchlade. And while they're on their way there to see the, uh, the harvesting that everybody takes part in, they meet a few people in a, which in some in a way that's so unusual in a utopia who dissent from the general way in which the world works. And some of those people are the obstinate refusers. And I would love to be one of the obstinate refusers. The main one of whom is a woman called Philippa. And they're called the obstinate refusers because they're not joining in with the harvest, which is sort of what everybody's doing. And that's okay in this world. In this utopia, you're allowed to kind of dissent. And what Philippa and her obstinate refusers are doing is they're, they're, they're carving on a new building. So like going back to Morris's very early story, the story of the unknown church with the carver, Philippa and her women are carving on this building and someone else is putting the roof on and they're too busy, sorry, they're not going to go and join in with the harvest. What a fantastic place, you know, validating women's work, women's choice, the capacity to do your own thing in a world where people are communal. So I love that. That's the place to go. Fairly simple to yours. Okay, so should we make this the first meeting of the obstinate <laughs> refusers? I think this definitely needs to be a group. Absolutely. That's I'm joining. A, that's a new, a new sisterhood, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ingrid. It's been lovely to talk to you. And thank you to everybody who's tuned in to listen. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast. Brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide.